One of the great struggles of the church through the centuries is how to, how to live with the state. And the church has had a uh, sort of a roller coaster record through the years of church and state relationship. Sometimes the church has understood it well and, and handled it correctly, and unfortunately, many times it has not. And, and you and I are, are continually faced with the, uh, the decisions of, of how we will react, how we live as Christians in a culture, in a society that is really not Christian. And like the church historic, we sort of probably have a roller coaster experience as well. Trying to figure out what does it mean to live as citizens of God's kingdom while being citizens of an earthly kingdom. And it's hard. It's a struggle. And we don't always get it right. We see this, this whole thing played out in, in this passage from John's gospel that we've read a few moments ago. Jesus has been arrested by the religious leaders, interrogated. They are, they are intent on executing him, but they don't have the power to do that. Only the Roman government does. So they make their way to Pilate, the Roman governor, and their object is to convince him to execute Jesus. Pilate interviews him and says... <laughs> he's not done anything that deserves death. And so he takes him back out and says, here, take him back. There's no reason to murder him. And the religious leaders say, wait a second, you can't do that. And they have this dialogue and they threaten Pilate. And Pilate eventually says, all right, well, let me try this. And he takes Jesus back in in chapter 18 and he has Jesus beaten. And the crown of thorns put on his head and he brings him back out as chapter 19 is unveiled and and Jesus is bruised and bloody and in Pilate's mind, I think he's thinking this ought to appease them. This ought to be good enough. And so he says, here's your king. And their response is not, okay, that's good enough. It's crucify him. That's not good enough. We want him to die. And Pilate says, you want me to crucify your king? And their response is one of the most incredible, astonishing things that is said in all the pages of Scripture. These people who, who are in positions of religious leadership, these people who have been given the task of representing God to the people and the people to God, these people whose, whose very role it is is to teach people about God and to, and to impact their lives for God, say to Caesar, or say to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. Are you kidding me? Wow. Now that didn't start on a day in... Palestine outside of Pilate's palace. You go all the way back to 1 Samuel. And in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, 
Samuel is, is nearing the end of his life. He's appointed his two sons to, to serve in his place. And up to that point, Israel has been led by people God has designated. Judges. Leaders. And the people of Israel come to Samuel and say, Look, your sons are not all that godly. But in a sense, that's beside the point. Because this transition period gives us an opportunity to do something we've been wanting to do for a while. You know how you get those moments in life. And they say to Samuel, we'd really like to have a king. We've looked around at everybody else and all the other nations and they have kings. And we want to be just like them. We want a king too. And Samuel's irritated because he feels rejected. God says to him, Samuel, the problem's not with you, it's with me. They haven't rejected you, they've rejected me as their king. And from that moment on, Israel is struggling and wrestling with who's going to be their king. And it culminates on this day, standing outside of Pilate's palace, where they declare, we have no king but Caesar. They have, in essence, thrown away the whole messianic hope that they've been living for. the, the, The whole nation of Israel has been waiting, pining, praying, preparing for this day when the king will come and usher in the kingdom, the Messiah. He will burst onto the scene and he will make all things right. And they have been waiting for that day, preparing for that day. And now, in this short declaration, they have in essence said, we don't care a thing about that day. We just want Jesus to be executed. It is all about getting rid of Jesus. We we don't care about the Messiah anymore. And you and I hear them say, we have no king but Caesar. We watch them throw away all their messianic hope. And our response is, wow, how could they do that? We would never do that. And we might not say, I, we have no king but Caesar. But as Chesterton says, you never really know, you never really any good as a person until you realize how bad you are or how bad you might be. And the truth of the matter is, While they declare that openly, you and I wrestle, are tempted to declare that subtly. We have no king but money. We have no king but power. We have no king but success. We have no king but my job. We have no king but that relationship. We have no king but being right. We have no king but our independence. We are continually tempted to declare subtly, we have no king but. For the religious leaders, it really is about making deals with the state in order to accomplish their purpose. 
They have decided that executing Jesus is so important, is so vital, is really their life mission right now, that they will make a deal with the state that undermines really everything that they are supposed to believe. And that too is a temptation for us. Something in our minds wants to believe, the subtle temptation to believe, that the real power in the world, what really moves the world is earthly power. If we can just get the right people elected, that'll change everything. If we can just make a new law, that will change everything. If we can prevent those people from getting elected, that will change everything. If we can get rid of that law, that will change everything. I listened, I read, I watched during this last electoral campaign and heard so much of the church make those kinds of statements. If we just get the right person in office, then what we want will happen. And subtly underneath that is this idea that the earth, the world is moved by power. If we just, we, we can trust in the powers that be, in the power brokers of the world to get things accomplished. And I watched the church give away so much that should be precious to us in order to try to get those things accomplished. And all the while, the cross is reminding us that real power, success, it's not in the stuff of this world, it's in trusting God. Now the problem is not that, that we're, people might be involved in, in the political realm or might be involved in, in, in places of power because quite frankly, there is good that can come from that. I mean, we would rather have someone who's godly and moral in a public office than someone who's ungodly and evil, right? I mean, I think that would be our choice. And so it's a good thing when people are involved in, in, in places of power and they are able to make, to influence things. The problem is we can become so enamored with those places of power that the power becomes more important than anything else. Because a whole lot of politics is simply designing ways to stay in power. And it's so easy to get caught up in that. And to forget that true power is in God. The only power that will move the world is from God. And we watch through biblical history as God uses powers, even pagan powers, to do his work. Because he is in control. And he's the one who moves things in this world. And it's in him that we trust. Even as we may see good things happen through politics, through the state, through power. Ultimately though, it's about God. I think one of the things that concerns me about 
the whole relationship of church and state is that it seems to me, and this is partly my own struggle, but I've seen this also bigger than that. It seems to me that often what we're asking from the state, what we're asking from the people of power is what I would call Christian entitlement. To make our lives easier, to make our lives more comfortable, it's about us. And we're willing to, to make deals, we're willing to even practice collusion in order to make life easier for us. Now, we give thanks for the freedom that we have. We, we live in an awesome nation and we have freedom to come together and worship. We have freedom to practice our faith with honestly very, very little in the way of opposition. And we give thanks for that. But I suspect that because we have so much freedom, we begin to think that that's a, that's a right as Christians instead of a privilege. And much of the conversation that takes place between the church and the state is how can the state make life easier for the church? Instead of how can the church have an influence, a positive influence, a godly influence on the state? And so we're upset when we feel like the state is impinging on our freedoms, taking away things that we take for granted. And maybe, just maybe, taking some of those things away will cause us to rely on God more than we do. I'm convinced that the reason that God allows people to be in power is not for us, it's for others. And any connections that we make to the state ought to be far less about what they can do for us and what they need to do for other people. We ought to be thinking about how how can the state, how can we influence the state to be a voice for people who have no voice? To take care of people who are vulnerable in our society. To care for people who have no recourse to make their life better or any different. To think about the poor and the disenfranchised. People in our society who are trampled and ignored. If we're going to do anything with the state and the powers that be, it ought to be for them. Instead of thinking about protecting our rights. I think back to the various times when God allowed one of his people to be in places of power in a foreign government. And and you see them doing things for the good of others. Even risking their own lives for the good of others. Think about Daniel. You know, Daniel continues to pray and to worship. And he ends up in a lion's den. I wonder sometimes if, if Daniel, if that happened today, if Daniel's first, first act would have been to sue the government. Hey, you're taking away my right to worship instead of just worshiping, following God 
despite the consequences. The struggle that I think is hard for us, it's hard for me, is to remember that the cross not only calls us to trust God, but it calls us to God's strategy for influencing the world. And that strategy is sacrifice. It's, it's not power, it's weakness. It's not making sure I have my rights, it's thinking about other people. It's being willing to give up just as Jesus does. And that is what sets us apart as the church. That's what sets us apart in this world, that we have decided that the strategies of this world may work for everyone else, but that's not the strategy of God. The kingdom of God is about love and sacrifice and giving of ourselves and the cross. Probably 50 years ago, A.W. Tozer, pastor, wrote something to the effect that we live in a very dangerous spiritual time. He said it's a time when people are are happy that Jesus has done all the sorrowing, all the suffering, all the dying. And we don't have to. Earlier this week, Cindy and I were driving to Buffalo and on the way we passed a church that had one of those big signs out front where they put, you know, pithy sayings on them. And we were driving along and, and one so caught my attention. I said to Cindy, quick, write this down. And I was driving so I couldn't write at the same time, which was good. But it, it, it caught my attention so clearly and it said this. It, doesn't, it won't cost you anything to believe. It'll cost you everything not to. Now, I understand what they're saying. I, I get the, the, especially the second part of that. But when I read that, when I thought of that first part, it will cost you nothing to believe. I thought to myself, that's not just wrong, that's heresy. I mean, where do you find that in the scriptures? Where do you hear Jesus say to his followers, Follow me, it won't cost you anything. He says, follow me, it'll cost you everything. If you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. And that means doing things differently in this world than maybe everybody else does. It means putting away power and embracing our weakness. It means giving up our rights for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom and of others. It means declaring we have no king but Jesus. And everything in our lives is about him. Everything that the church is, is about him. And it's the cross.
few years ago in a book that he wrote, Greg Boyd said, the greatest power on this planet is self-sacrificial love. The greatest power on the planet is self-sacrificial love. And then he said, because when God flexes his omnipotent muscles, it doesn't look like Rambo or the Terminator or any of the, the halls of power. It looks like a cross. Every day, as individuals, as the church, we're faced with the decision. What's our life going to be? We have no king but Caesar? Or we have no king but Jesus? Heavenly Father, it's a hard word for us. There's stuff in our minds even now where we're struggling. I'm struggling. I want life to be comfortable and easy. I like having power. Help us to hear you calling us to something different. Help us to hear you calling us to your kingdom of self-sacrifice, of weakness, of trust. And let us be channels of blessing and grace and mercy in a world that desperately needs it. Help us live out every day as individuals in the church that declaration that we have no king but you. We pray this through Christ. Amen.